0: Good morning, I'm Joel Dykstra. Um, today we will be reading from Matthew 24, 42 through twenty-five thirteen, which can be found on pages 830 in the Pew Bible. Matthew 24, 42 through twenty-five thirteen. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that wicked servant says to himself, my master is delayed and begins to beat his fellow servants and eats and drinks with drunkards, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and in an hour he does not know and will cut him to pieces and put him with the hypocrites. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins, This is the word of the Lord. Thanks to
1: you, God. May I pray for us again? Jesus, thank you for your word. Thanks for who you are. Thanks for gathering us this morning to not just learn things, but to be changed by what you say. I pray the way this passage starts with a call to stay awake, to, to wake up, Uh, In your love and mercy, in your kindness, would you call us to yourself? Would you wake up our souls? Uh, For those who are sleepy with pain and suffering, would you come and would you help? For those who are sleepy, uh, because they're distracted and they're um, busy and they um, have wandered, would you bring about repentance and help? For those who aren't uh, asleep in a tired way, but asleep the way the Bible talks about, they're, they're actually not alive yet, would you wake them up to salvation and grant them eternal life even this morning? God, would you, would you do what we need that we can't do on our own through your word, uh, we ask in Jesus' name, amen, amen. Hey, one more quick announcement, and then uh, I want to get us into this text. Uh, I'm excited this morning. Uh, we are starting... During our uh, communion time, which happens after the sermon, we try to give a chance to respond. Um, We're also going to add now a place for you to go if you need prayer, uh, want prayer, desire prayer. And let me cast a little vision here. We've been working on this for quite a while, actually, as a church. We're trying to just increase our focus on prayer. That's why we take time every Sunday just to carve out some time and not pray over you, but ask you to pray with us. We have a prayer gathering on Thursdays. We try to do the first Wednesday of the month, which will be this Wednesday. We'll gather Wednesday night at 630 in this room and just trying to pray more as a people, uh, which is hard actually to admit our dependence sometimes or to stay focused. Maybe we're not used to it. And sometimes we think about prayer as like for those people that are like in a really bad spot. And if you don't feel like you're in a really bad spot, maybe you can just use your strength and you can keep going. But prayer has a way of recalibrating us to what's true about our creatureliness to receive. And it just says out loud that God cares. It says that God can do something about this. And it says that we have, we have needs. So that would be like all of us all the time, regardless of how well things are going or how difficult things are going. So, so when I say if you need prayer, um, that's like all of us need prayer. And maybe there'll be some Sundays where it's not catastrophic, but you want to respond to what you've been singing or what you've heard in God's word. It's been going on this week and you just need somebody to pray over you you would share with them a quick word of what's happening and just have another person pray with you so you don't feel you don't feel alone. And there may be some days where it is catastrophic and you're hurting and it'd be a great opportunity for you to just hear somebody claim truths about God's love over you and have a chance to actually welcome you into the presence of Jesus in a real focused way. And so it should be a way for us to care for each other, a way for us to celebrate. Um, and it's not uh Something I think that will happen automatically for us. I'm setting my expectations, just kind of knowing who we are. It'll build over time, but even just beginning this morning, um, it'll be out these doors to the right. There's a couches there. There'll be a couple of folks with lanyards on and they would just love to to pray for you. If you have questions, they can answer some of those as well. So um, we normally kind of crash land the sermon into communion, and I feel like I'm frazzled and jumping off stage. And so I want to say that up front now. I'll say it again at the end, but it might feel like, remember the thing about prayer? Let's go. That's, my, how, that's probably how it will feel at the end. So that's the vision behind what we're trying to do. Um, and I really do want to invite you. And I really my goal in saying that is um, not just like a, to destigmatize it, but actually just to welcome you. Like it's a grace and a gift for you to be prayed for. Um, maybe you're not even a follower of Jesus and you're wondering if God's even real, have someone pray for you would be a really meaningful part of your spiritual journey. So that's for everyone. Uh, it'll happen again at, at a communion uh, as well. Okay, all right. Hey, to help us get in this text, I want you to think about the last time you were at a funeral. Not like the, all the sad parts of that, but just think about how things flowed, what all happened there. There's normally a couple of things that take place. There's a, a remembering of the person. Um, there's a telling of stories Uh, There's a kind of honesty about how hard it is and the, the grief that's there. Some of the themes that are in these passages in Matthew 24 and 25 come out of a funeral because someone's death reminds us that this life is not all there is. And so there's hope for the future. And so sometimes you'll read other passages, talk about resurrections and talk about Christ coming to welcome his people. And so a funeral has an element to it of, of looking forward and asking for God to meet us and kind of remembering what's true about what God's promised that does that for us. But it has this other effect as well of, of impacting us and having us take stock of where we are. Maybe the pastor or a friend, or maybe just in your own heart, the question will get posed of like, what if this was you? What if if you breathed your last? And and then there's a list, right, of are there relationships that I should be reconciled to? Would I be really sad if I miss a chance to call somebody or to ask their forgiveness or to extend grace and forgiveness? Are my priorities out of whack? Am I spending too much time at work? And you've you've heard thousands of times, nobody, 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 nobody on their deathbed says, man, I wish I would have worked more. And been away from my family more often and would have neglected my friends for the sake of my own achievement. No one says that, right? So funerals kind of reorient us a little bit. They help us just stop and focus and rethink about what's most important in life relationally, kind of what we're focused on. And and again, it's rooted too in these promises of the next life. I say that just to help us get in this text. This is not a funeral passage, but Jesus is about to die. He's days away from the cross. He's in this season here where Um, He's in the last week of his earthly ministry. He knows he's going to the cross and he's preparing his disciples. And as they left Jerusalem, as he kind of pronounced curses on the temple and as he talked about the upheaval of the old religious way and how how it was corrupt and broken, that he was actually the center of all of the universe. It was supposed to always be about God And it had gotten off base, and so there's this like confrontation with the religious leaders that's just taken place. They leave Jerusalem, and the disciples are just scratching their head because Jesus is talking about the temple in ways that are shocking to them. They have Jesus kind of turn around and say, "Look, look back. Jesus said, this temple, look how glorious it is. And Jesus says, hey, this whole thing is going to be destroyed. And for them, it's like a lot of things. It's not just a physical building. It's not just a historical event. It's the center of their life. And so they asked at the beginning of chapter 24, hey, Jesus, when is this going to take place? When will the temple be destroyed? And for them, the temple being destroyed was a sign of the end of the world as well. Just couldn't even imagine a world without the temple, without a a place where God dwelt with his people. It was the epicenter of everything in their world. So they blend a question about when's the end going to come and when are you going to return? For the last couple of weeks, we've been in Matthew 24 just kind of working through how Jesus responds to that, and we've just been... Kind of humble, maybe a little insecure to talk about the mysteries that are in this text. There's some things that are just not quite as clear as at least I wish they were. And maybe some of the questions you have about how things are going to unravel, how things go down. Maybe you've heard it with a whole lot of certainty. And the more you read the Bible, you realize, wait, that's hard to fit into these things. The timelines sometimes overlap and feel a little bit fuzzy. And we just have said that's not Jesus making a mistake or being obtuse. It's actually instructive to us. What Jesus has been doing is telling us like what's most important as we think about the next life, the same way a funeral kind of reorients us about what's, what's most important. So they ask, what are going to be the signs and when's this going to happen? And Jesus does answer those questions, but maybe in ways that they're surprised. He actually tells them like the temple will be destroyed in their lifetime. And so it would shock them. And it, again, it's a blending of like the end. And so we've talked about this idea of, of prophecy, sometimes like a mountain range, You can't quite see how far it goes sometimes. So prophets in the Old Testament speak of things like like right now, like they're imminent. In some sense, they are. There's a near mountain. But like when you drive through western Kansas and you look at the Rockies, they go on and on and on for quite a while, and you can't see all those. So to say you got to the mountains is true, but there's just a whole lot more behind that. So with that kind of metaphor, we've said that Jesus does answer kind of what some of the signs will be. But, but not in ways that we're meant to actually make predictions. He goes on to just say really clearly in the passage last week that, that nobody knows when this will take place. So we're not meant to look for science. He says that's actually the world's going to go on like it always has. There'll be wars and famines and there'll be lawlessness and relationships will break. It'll feel really normally broken and then the end will come. And it's been kind of confusing because we would love to have a clear timeline and a real easy way to predict. It would give us a sense of control. And in fact, he warns about false teachers multiple times in that text. False teachers often offer a quick solution to deep problems. They offer insight that we don't have. They offer kind of spiritual meaning that we didn't know on our own. And if we would just follow them or trust what they say, then it actually will fix itself or we'll be okay. Or we could have some sense of certainty or control. So we just spend a little time like the reason why warns about false teaching so much is because even around the return of Jesus, there's this promise that you could be in control. But the whole idea is that it's about him and that we're not in control so he labors actually really clearly to say hey you're not going to know when this happens it's going to happen suddenly it's going to happen unexpectedly but it is going to happen so we come now to verse 42 with really the question well what do we do if we're looking at this mountain range and we don't know how far away it is and how many times it's going to happen and what all the signs will be and Jesus answers how we are to wait so what will be the signs has been covered. When will it happen has been covered. Now it's how should we live while we wait. And verse 42 just jumps right in with this word therefore, right? So I've been summarizing the previous sections because it therefore comes after some teaching. In light of everything I've just said, therefore, here's the punchline, stay awake. You can't see how far away the mountains are. You don't know all of the signs. You don't know when this is actually going to happen. So my instruction to you, the command here, the imperative is to stay awake. For you don't know on what day the Lord is coming. When you can't predict how far away it is, the instruction there is to stay awake. And now what he's going to do is, in a series of five parables describe what it means to stay awake. How how do we stay awake? What's involved in staying awake? And the way parables work is they're small spiritual stories that normally have one main idea. There's details in them that matter, but, but they're kind of saying one thing. And what he's going to be saying for five parables is, this is how my servants stay awake. All these parables have in them God's servants or the master's servants. We'll go all the way to the end of chapter 25 in these little parables. We'll cover three of them this morning. Then one's called the parable of the talents or parable of the stewards. And then he'll talk about this parable of the sheep and the goats. It's all kind of the same thing, but he kind of layers it in ways where our ethics and our affections blur with our eschatology, which is a big word for the way things end, to say what well, you think about the end changes what you love and long for, and it affects how you live your life. He's going to blur these things in some ways. So I want you just to hear this is uh, instruction on how do you stay awake? What does it look like for followers of Jesus who see themselves as servants of the master, How do they stay awake when they can't quite predict what's going to happen and the timeline? And part of it, too, we just have been saying already it's not that nothing is clear. We're supposed to focus on what's most clear that, that Christ will, in fact, return. That when he returns, he's going to make all things new. He's also going to come in judgment. So there's a warning throughout all these parables. They they have this kind of severity to them. You, you read even about a, a dude getting chopped up and places where there's gnashing of teeth. Right, he's pressing in on us. This is not a game. These are these are severe things because when Christ comes back, what he had atoned for in his first coming through his death, those who reject him now have to pay that sin themselves. So there's this merciful offer of making all things new, and there's this sober warning. We know when Christ comes back, he comes not to make another sacrifice, but to come as a judge. Which if you're wondering what Christianity is about, uh, that's a good word for you to understand. This is not like a way of life. It's not like being a vegetarian or a Republican or something like that. It's not a, a sort of ethics or a code of behavior. It's an orientation of your soul toward the God who made you. But the scripture says we've offended with our sin. And that sin separates us from God and deserves his wrath, the scriptures say. Because of how holy he is that we sang about, the degree of his holiness means the degree of our sinfulness should be punished. And God in his love and mercy sent his son into the world to die in our place. This one who's speaking these words in Matthew 24 and 25 is God's son. He took on flesh, came into this world, lived the life that we should have lived, and then he died a sacrificial death in our place so that if we would trust in him, we can be forgiven. He bore the weight of all of our sins so we could escape the judgment. And he has these contrasts of of wicked and wise and foolish and wise and servants that hate the master and servants that love the master to say to us, you only have two choices. There's not a whole bunch of ways. You either trust Christ and are forgiven, set free, redeemed, and healed, or you don't and you bear the consequence of all of your sin. The second coming of Christ tells us that very clearly. All the passages in the New Testament, the prophecies of the Old Testament, rehearse this theme of God's mercy and his restoration as well as his judgment. We know that we will rise with him. We know that as he comes back, he's going to set all things the way they're supposed to be. We know there'll be suffering. We know there'll be Antichrist. We know that there will be pain as we wait. These things are sure. We can be humble about what we're not quite sure of. And now he wants to help us understand in all the questions we have, holding on to what's clear and certain, how do you actually stay awake? So, so I just want to give four things from these uh, first three parables Um, They are what servants of the master do to stay awake. Uh, They'll be loosely connected to kind of the flow of this thing. But because these are all kind of making the same point and they weave together, we'll jump around a little bit. But just so you can take notes, if you need some signposts, we're going to talk about servants stay awake by anticipating his return. Just simply anticipating it, longing for it, looking for it. Anticipate the return of Christ as a way to stay awake. Secondly, to live a life of repentance. Repentance. Is a way to stay awake. To do the will of the Father is a way of staying awake. And then to share the good news that Jesus made a way for people to come to faith in Him is a way you stay awake. Or, stay another way, to join God on His mission to seek and save and rescue is a way that you stay awake. So let me give it to you again. We anticipate His return, that's how we stay awake. We live a life of repentance, we do the will of the Father. And then we tell others about his mercy and grace so they can receive that. I want to show you that from this text. The first one is pretty simple and pretty straightforward. Look with me in verse 43. After he's told them to stay awake, he tells this first little parable. He says, but know this, that if the master of the house had had known at what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and he would not have left the house to be broken into. Therefore, you must also be ready for the son of man is coming at an hour, you don't expect. So Jesus has labored to say how hey, you can't predict it. You don't know. You can't put it on a timeline. Be weary of those who make day and hour and even yearly predictions of Christ's return. Because you don't know when it's going to happen, you must be ready. You must anticipate it. The scriptures talk about the the longer God lingers, the more doubt we have, and the more scoffing comes in about maybe he's not actually coming back, and there's an unbelief that kind of wells up inside of our heart. Even though he told us everything was going to be hard, we were going to struggle, we were going to be persecuted, there was going to be lots of suffering. He told us it was going to be a while till he returns. Still, as we wait, it's hard. And so the first way to simply stay awake is to remind yourself regularly that Christ will return. He talks about if, if he had known when it was going to happen, he would have stayed awake. And the idea there is you don't know when it's going to happen. So, so you must just be ready. Be ready for his return. Anticipate his return. And this idea of thief coming is just to speak about quickness. There's no morality like he's going to be super deceptive or sneaking and take all your stuff. It's about quickness. It springs on you without warning. Actually, several places in the New Testament pull that theme just to say this is going to happen fast. So don't get sleepy in your soul. Don't get sleepy in your values. Don't get sleepy in your relationship. Don't get sleepy in your pursuit of God. Stay awake by anticipating. Regularly rehearse the good news that he came and that he's coming again. It's why we gather on Sunday, right? To, to wake ourselves up again, to remind ourselves of the hope that's in the next life as well, that he will come is a way that we stay awake. So, so real simply, that's actually all I want to say there, but you don't want to miss the idea that you need to foster and cultivate a heart that anticipates his return. And let me just say, as simple as it is, can we acknowledge that may not be easy in the distracted, fragmented, consumer world we live in? I don't know, just maybe audit last week and how many times did it cross your mind versus deadlines you had at work, versus relational strife you had, versus things you wanted to purchase, things you wish you could do, ways you saw someone else celebrating Memorial Day on Instagram and and wished you could have been there. Like, that stuff clouds our mind and so many ways this simple call is not an easy call to anticipate maybe a liturgy maybe you put a post note in your bible maybe a way of reminding yourself that on your bathroom mirror he's coming back stay awake he's coming back because a servant longs for the return of the master and doesn't forget what the main point of all of this is which these other parables then kind of get into what happens when we forget that, when we get distracted, when we start to think that maybe we're the main point or stuff is the main point, or our own pleasure is the main point. So, so first, anticipate his return. Secondly, live a life of repentance. Let's come into this next section here in verse 45. He says, who then is the faithful and wise servant? He's, he's going to tell us what that looks like. He's saying, this is what it means for you to actually follow me. Who is the one whose master has set over his household to give them food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will, be set, he will set over him all of his possessions. Truly, I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. Okay, I messed it up reading it, and it's still not that clear if you're like reading really good. If you're a gooder reader than me, you still struggle with what the heck does that actually mean? I think he's simply saying there's uh, roles that we have. And the servant of the master who's wise and faithful functions in his role. And he knows if his job is to feed the rest of the servants in the household, then he faithfully does that. He, he sets the food and makes sure they have what they need at the proper time. It's a, it's a way of saying the guy does his job. Faithful servants do their job in the house. And this one has something to do with with food. It's his job to make sure everybody else is taken care of while the master is away. Okay, and now he's going to go into a contrast, verse 28. But if the wicked servant, contrast to the wise, faithful servant, the wicked servant says to himself, my master is delayed. I actually read Proverbs this week. We're going to do a series starting in July through the book of Proverbs for a couple of months. And there's this Idea in in the book of Proverbs uh, of the way that like the uh, unfaithful, adulterous woman, which is not a physical woman, but but the idea of sin says, oh, my husband's gone. He's going to be gone a super long time. We can indulge in whatever we want. He won't be back for quite a while. It's the way this servant says, my master is delayed. He's not going to be here. He'll never know. And he begins then to beat his fellow servants, contrast to taking care of them. It goes really quick. Proverbs are like jolting spiritual stories. It goes from caring for them in contrast then to, to beat his fellow servants. And he eats and drinks with drunkards. So it goes from like these licentious, comforting realities to actually this idea of, of harming other people, right? To, to tyrannize other people, says the master that servant will come back on a day when he doesn't expect Remember that's the idea you don't know when it's going to happen you know how big the mountain range is you don't know how many fulfillments there are going to be we're living in the last days so be ready when the master comes and he doesn't expect it he's going to cut him into pieces and put him with the hypocrites in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth okay these are like not bedtime stories this is really really intense But he's saying to you, and don't miss the significance. He wants to push in front of you the importance of This is not a take it or leave it text. Like if you want to be a wise servant, that's good for you. And if you don't, it's probably going to be okay. He's saying, hey, there's only two choices here. Because the second person, as he says, my master is delayed. He moves into being the master. He starts to treat the servants as if they exist for him. It's how he's able to brutalize them. It's how he's able to to beat them. It's how he's able to squander the master's resources and all of this kind of drunkenness and and living. So food is kind of the context. One sets the table for other people. The other one takes advantage of people and then begins to take advantage of the joys and pleasures and provision that the master has. It's a way of talking about sin. It's a way of talking about brokenness. It's a way of talking about our dysfunctional hearts that resist the idea that we're under Christ's lordship and seek to establish our own identity some other way. Seek to get our own pleasure, our own, our own control. And I think it's really helpful the way he kind of gives these two statements. One is beating people. And the other one is this like comforting licentious drunkenness. Maybe that kind of gives a range for you because you would never. some of you would never, ever, ever raise your voice at someone. You would never harm someone relationally. You would never use shame. You would never insult anybody. You would never curse at someone. You'd never call anybody a name. You would never do that. But maybe you struggle with these comforting realities. Maybe there's things in secret. Maybe there's ways that you, you indulge. And some of you would never, you would never cross lines. You would never look at pornography, you would never misuse money, you would never do certain things, but you find yourself harshly treating people. You find yourself angry. You find yourself in spaces where your your heart is actually bent away from people. I think Jesus, like most of the New Testament, gives a range of sin for us to kind of say, hey, when the master is away and you put yourself in the space of being master, you will use people around you. You will brutalize people around you. And the idea that's so fascinating is that when we do that, these things that we use or indulge in, thinking that we're the master, they then begin to master us. Sin has a way of like dulling our senses. It has a way of, of numbing us in some significant ways. So, so let me just kind of be a little more clear. In Luke's parallel to this passage, here's the way Luke kind of highlights what Jesus has said. He says in verse Uh, 34 chapter 21 of Luke. But watch yourselves, stay awake, lest your hearts be weighed down by dissipation or drunkenness and the cares of this life. And that day come upon you suddenly like a trap. For it will come upon all who dwell on the face of the whole earth. But stay awake at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. Luke front loads, just to be a little more clear, the struggle with sin and the fight for holiness that happens as we wait. And he says this word dissipation in the Greek is actually the, the word you it's like for a headache that you have when you've been drinking. So for when you've been hung over and, and when you are drunk, the cares of this life, when they are weighing you down, sin has this numbing, dulling effect. You lose your sobriety when you engage in sinfulness in ways that you can no longer see people clearly. You can't see yourself it creates a kind of grogginess. And so maybe if you're taking notes, would you write this down? Ephesians chapter four, starting around verse 17, going into chapter five, you see a list here of things that God's waking us up to, to his love, his holiness. And he says in chapter five, hey, wake up, O sleeper, and let the light of Christ shine upon you. How do you stay awake? You let Christ, searing, sanitizing, holy love shine upon you. And the chapter is full of A list of things that look like vices and destructive behaviors that we turn to when we don't turn to God. You only have two choices. Either you're going to see him as the master or you're going to let yourself be the master. And when you let yourself be the master, you take advantage of people. You cut corners. You you indulge when you think you're entitled to something. Even if it's just illicit comfort that nobody knows about, you become your own master. And when you treat another person with such hatred or, or contempt, you become a master. 1 Thessalonians 5 has a real similar set of ideas here. The call that Christ is going to return is partnered with a call towards holiness. 2 Peter chapter 3, sa- same thing. And that's the chapter that says, hey, aren't there scoffers that say he, he hasn't come back yet? When's he actually going to return? And in those spaces, it's a call to, to holy, righteous Living, Even the prophet Joel, who talks about the end of the world coming and the sky going dark, things that Jesus has referenced. There's a call to repentance is the next frame there. And Peter picks this up in Acts chapter 2 when they have the signs there of the Spirit coming with the tongues of fire. Strange story. It's actually a beautiful story, but if you're not familiar, it sounds odd. But immediately what Peter does is calls for repentance. He says, these are the signs. This is the end the right response, the way we stay awake is a call to repentance. And if you're using stay awake as kind of a metaphor, if you can just imagine this, that sin makes you sleepy. It, it makes, you, makes you groggy. It, it dulls your senses. And so servants who are waiting repent regularly to kind of clear their hearts and clear their heads so they can see clearly who, who God is and what it means to follow him. I thought about uh, grogginess for a moment. And, um, I know it is popular in 2023 with glycemic indexes to hate on sugar. You can look at me and you can, you can just judge for yourself what I think about sugar and its <laughs> effects. But I was sitting with a guy at breakfast a number of years ago who was a young dude, but he was a diabetic. Uh, and we're sitting down at a Panera and have a coffee and he gets this huge cinnamon roll. And he's just told me he's a diabetic and I don't know much about being diabetic, but I'm like, man, I don't, I don't know, but I don't think that's what you're supposed to do. And he said, hey, no problem. I took a shot, uh, and this shot will actually does something to counter back the sugar. And, and then he described to me there's kind of two shots. One, if you have low blood sugar, you take this one. It boosts your blood sugar. And if you have high blood sugar, you take this one, and it lowers your blood sugar. And I was like, cool, man. That's great. We start talking. I literally watched this man fall asleep in front of me, not because the conversation was so boring, because his body was literally shutting down, like what he had taken into his body began to actually crash. And you know this like sugar crash deal where you're like, hey, let's go get a treat. And you go to Andy's and get the splurge and get the large one. And you're like napping 45 minutes later, right? You take something in, it dulls you, it pleasures you, and then it dulls you and you crash. Okay, in a very small way, can you just imagine sin is like that? Always has a pleasurable part to it. Always something that you're enticed by. Always something that you love and enjoy. But there's a crash that happens. And a perpetual intake of let me break them it's sugar sin the whole like like if you keep taking that in it will jack with how you see the world it will mess with your energy to follow Jesus. So in that space then what this text is highlighting an unfaithful servant who sees himself as the master and therefore goes after power and control in sinful ways. The call in that space is a call to repentance. And again the rest of the New Testament text to highlight this theme of waiting to say Oh, turn away from those things. Repent. So, so I don't have time to read those texts this morning, but, but Ephesians 4, 17 to 5, would be good for your soul just to read and reflect on. 1 Thessalonians 5, 1 through 11 would be really good for your soul to hear him say, Christ is returning, therefore live a holy life. And it's a call just to perpetual repentance. 2 Peter chapter 3 1 to 15 as well. It would help us actually engage in this without being tyrants to those around us, which is what happens when we become our own masters. You remember that movie Robin Hood or cartoon or book or however you first came across that? When, when the king is away and his brother, maybe Prince John or does a sheriff as well, that kind of does some really shady things, but they imagine themselves as now in charge. And you just watch them throughout those Movies or cartoons or books brutalize people. That's what's going on in this text. And so the call to the Christian to stay awake is to live a life of repentance, to avoid these things that would dull your senses and would put you to sleep, put you to sleep morally, relationally, in ways that you actually you numbed your soul. So, so live a life of repentance, I think, is kind of the highlight of the second parable. And then the third is to do the will of the Father. So this is the parable of the ten virgins. He's not talking about anything that has to do with sexual activity. This is young girls who would tend to the bride. So you could read bridesmaids into that. The text says that they, they took their lamps They're going to go out to meet the bridegroom, and their five were foolish and five were wise. And the foolish ones took their lamps, but they didn't take any oil. They they weren't prepared. They weren't doing what they were supposed to do. They didn't live into their job as those who were supposed to actually have these lamps to light the path later. But the wise ones, verse 4, took flasks of oil with them. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and they slept. Here's that idea again, right? Instead of staying awake, the contrast is to go drowsy and to sleep. And at midnight, there was a cry, here's the bridegroom, come out and meet him. And so they wake up, and it's time to go. It's the bridesmaid's moment. Here, she's going to come out, and they're going to line the street in ways that the, the procession from maybe the bride's house to the groom's house. And we don't have a ton of detail about how these work, but many commentators and historians talk about in the ancient world, weddings were like weeks long, which you thought your wedding was awesome. Like a week long would be amazing. And it starts maybe in one home, and maybe the formal part of it is there. And then they would do whatever they do, and then they would have this processional to another place where the big party was going to happen. And something's going on where that's longer delayed than normal. And you've been at those weddings where you have this moment, it was awesome, and then, hey, we're all going to go join the bride and groom at this venue. And they're like, three hours later, they come, and they went and had a meal, took a bunch of pictures, and you're sitting at the reception, all the food is gone, and you don't even like people at your table, and you're just waiting for them to come, and it just feels kind of weird, but that's kind of this setting. They're, they're longer than they used to, or they thought they were going to be and so they're supposed to come out now and light this path. It would be this beautiful Instagramable moment to have these torches across the path as the bridal party comes through but five of them don't have oil for their lamps anymore. Jesus calls them foolish. And those virgins, they, they rose and they trimmed their lamps for the foolish ones. Said to the wise, would you give us some of your oil for our lamps? They're going out. But the wise answered, saying, since there, will not, or, uh, since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers. Maybe somebody's open. You can buy some more oil for yourself. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went into him to the marriage feast. Those who were ready and prepared to have what they needed had been doing the will that they were supposed to do, and the door then was shut behind them. Afterward, the other virgins, the other ones who didn't have oil, came saying, Lord, Lord, open up to us. But he answered, truly I say to you, I don't know you. Verse 13, watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. Stay awake. Okay, parables have like one idea or point. This is not a parable about sharing with your neighbor. It's not a parable about weddings and how they should function, right? The fact that they don't share their oil is not a knock on like Christian charity. That's not the point. The point is about being awake and alert and that says these people were not awake and alert. That they they knew what they were supposed to do and they didn't do it. So now it's time. The bridegroom comes at a time they didn't expect. And it had been a long time. They were waiting longer than they anticipated. Maybe it was harder than they thought or something like that. And now the bridegroom comes and they're simply not ready because they didn't bring what they were supposed to bring. They weren't doing the will of the one who called them into that role. And then they come and they knock on the door. And it's a similar language to Matthew chapter 7, which is the Sermon on the Mount. They knock on the door and they say, Lord, Lord. Jesus says, there'll be many who say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name, do many miracles in your name? He's going to say, I never knew you. And then he says right before that, there'll be people who say to me, Lord, Lord, but you didn't actually do what I asked you to do. So there's this hollow religious ritual and there's this in name and word only kind of faith that Jesus in Matthew 7 pushes against. And he says in that text, I don't know you. I think you would have Matthew 7 in your mind when you hit Matthew 25. It's a strange little story. I don't really know what to make of all the details there, but the idea that the Sermon on the Mount is telling us what it means to follow after God in His kingdom, how you're supposed to live ethically in His kingdom, because that's the point of that passage, to have hauntingly similar language to said to people who didn't do what they were supposed to do, communicates to us that one of the ways we stay awake is to be about the Father's business, to do what he actually calls us to do, to do the will of the Father. And those who do the will of the Father, those who do what Christ has called them to do, those are the ones who actually know him. Jesus will say, why do you say, Lord, Lord, and you don't do what I say? There's this call to Christians to stay awake by actively engaging in what God has called us to, to be about. And this haunting language here means you could be near the wedding, you you could be associated with it, you could enjoy the party, you could you could be right there where you're supposed to be and yet not actually have your heart tied to the groom. Right? There's something here about their affection for him. They, they knew what they were supposed to do, and they chose not to do it, which is a way, again, of saying, I'm the master of my own life. I will do what I want to do. I won't do what I'm supposed to do. I'm going to do what I want to do. And in that space, to not follow after the commands of Jesus puts them in a space where they're on the outside. And instead, those who stay awake, those who are following after the king, do what the king has called them to do. It's a call to holiness, right, which is the twin side of repentance, to acknowledge your brokenness and then move towards this life that God has called us to. It actually helps us move towards holiness in that space. I think the the imagery is maybe kind of mysterious, but the main point is super clear. Wise followers of Jesus, in contrast to foolish followers of Jesus, are prepared and do what God has called them to do, And again, when you tie it back to that Sermon on the Mount language, that's where Jesus describes what it means to live in the kingdom. And it's those who actually do what God has called them to do that he says welcome. And those who just use the language he doesn't actually engage with. He doesn't actually open the door to. I thought about that scene, right? It's been three hours since the bride and groom left the wedding and now they're supposed to go to the reception and you're getting bored and tired. And I would guess your relationship proximity to the bride and groom determines if you stay or not. Because maybe, what if they just like, what if they thought it would be fun to go to Vegas and didn't tell anybody? You don't, you don't know if they're ever going to come, so you're just waiting and waiting and waiting. If you're like their mom, you stick it out. If you're on a date with their second, third cousin, and you're like the add one person, I bet you you're tempted to go, dude, can we just like go to Go to Applebee's or something, and like get get something to eat. Your proximity, how close you know them, would determine whether or not you would you would wait. There's something about following Jesus and doing what He calls us to do that shows that we know Him. And you wait as, as you know Him. You wait as you love Him. You wait and obey as you see Him as the Master and want to be a faithful servant. We'll jump into the parable of talents next week, and then we'll in two weeks look at this. Uh, parable of the sheep and the goats. He's going to layer it more and get more and more intense. But I want to give you one more thing this morning, just put this fresh on your mind. What does it mean to stay awake? It's the, the servants are about the master's business. And what is the master's business? It's to seek and to save the lost. We stay awake as we join Jesus on his mission to share the good news of Jesus with other people. As we actually share the good news and make disciples, he's going to close the book of Matthew with this call for us to stay awake as we go and make disciples. Go be about his business. A good servant wants to do what the master is about. So a fourth way we stay awake is to go tell people of the good news of what Christ has done. We anticipate his return. We live a life of repentance. We we do the will of the Father because we know him. We don't see ourselves as the master. We want to follow and obey what he says because, because we love and know him. And then we want to tell other people about him, I think those are some of the ways that we stay awake, and we'll look at some more as we get ready for communion. I want to just kind of put this in your mind. I think communion is a smelling salts under our nose. It's a it's a wake, it's a wake you up moment to remember what Christ has done. Because this one who's telling you to repent and do the will of the Father and who's locking doors and sending people into utter darkness, you wonder what what must he be like. And communion reminds us that he's a God who stood in our place and took the torture that we deserved, bore it on himself so that we could be rescued and saved. And whatever it is about his holiness, whatever it is about his lordship, whatever it is about how he rules the kingdom, at the center of that is his love for you to die in your place. And that wakes you up. It's a better love than other loves you've experienced. It's, it's more um, satisfying than other things you could indulge in. Again, because when you become your own master, it actually flips on you, and the things you look at to control begin to control you. Communion reminds us you have a master who died in your place to rescue and to save. So for Christians, it's a a wake-up and a reminder that should anticipate joyful return of your king, and, and have you soberly look at your life and go, where am I at? Am I living in light of the truths of what I say I believe? If you're not a follower of Jesus, I want to invite you to stay in your seat just to pray and ask God to speak to you. What you've heard this morning is a a way of talking about the gospel, the good news of what Christ has come to do. And if you're not ready to trust that yet, don't come and take communion because that's for those who are trusting the the broken body and shed blood of Christ. If you're not ready for that, just stay in your seat and pray. There's prayers in the back of your worship guide that will give you some examples of how you can pray and what it would sound like to ask for God's help, even for belief, as you just kind of sat honestly. Your questions don't freak him out. He's glad that you're here. He's speaking to you even now. You're welcome just to sit and pray if you don't know him. And if you want to talk to somebody about knowing him, those people who are at that prayer station would be great to do that with. Anybody else who wants just prayer for whatever else you're dealing with, they would love to pray with you and for you. So we'll take communion and seek prayer at the same time. Let me pray for us, and then we'll sing. Jesus, we love you. We say thank you. We ask now in this moment that you would wake us up, You command us to stay awake, so now would you use your grace and mercy and signs of your love to wake us up to the realities of who you are. Minister to your people, we ask in profound ways. Amen.